In Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this to the Galatian church. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? What did he mean when he said Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified before your eyes? Well, the word in the original, publicly portrayed, means to placard. It means to put in front of them as a billboard. What he was referring to was his preaching. When he had come to Galatia, he preached, and at the center of his message was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Even as he says elsewhere, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so as he comes, he preaches the crucifixion of Christ. He paints a picture before their mind's eye of what happened on that cross and its significance. That on that cross, the Son of God died, and he died for sins. And included in his message would have been the proper response to the crucifixion, namely that for everyone who believes in that crucified one, they will have all of their sins immediately forgiven forever and be destined for heaven. And so that's what he did to the Galatians. That's what he did wherever he went. He preached the crucifixion of Christ. He publicly portrayed Jesus Christ as crucified in front of his listeners. Now here he calls them foolish because the Galatians were giving a hearing to those who had come in trying to corrupt the gospel by adding law works to it. Well, this morning we return to our study in Mark's gospel, and I ask you to turn to Mark 15, and we're going to consider those before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, but not in a figurative sense, but in a literal sense. We're going to consider those who were actual eyewitnesses to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in real time, not in their mind's eye, But before their physical eyes, Jesus Christ was crucified. So for a final time, we're going to be in Mark 15, verses 33 to 41. We've had several messages from that passage. We're going to make one more pass through it. So let me read verses 33 to 41 of Mark chapter 15. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the last and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. 
Well, from this portion of, of Mark's gospel, we have seen the one contribution that Mark makes to the seven words of Jesus spoken from the cross, the only one that Mark includes, and that was that cry of abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And last time, we saw how God the Father manifests himself on Golgotha, not with spoken words, but with visible signs, as from 12 noon to 3 o'clock, there was a pall of darkness that came over the land, pitch dark when Jesus died on the cross. And that huge, thick veil in the temple was ripped in two, indicating that by virtue of the death of Jesus, access is now possible into the immediate presence of God through faith in Jesus. But now, this morning, we want to look at the eyewitnesses to the death of Jesus. We're going to look at four classes of people who witnessed with their physical eyes the crucifixion of Christ. And the first are what I'm calling the mockers. The mockers. Verses 34 to 36. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, we have seen that Jesus' cry, whether it was in Hebrew, Eli, Eli, or in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, that that cry was a cry to God, and those words are taken from Psalm 22. But the commentators I read all agree that the bystanders hearing him either misunderstood or deliberately misconstrued the words of Jesus and said that he was really crying out to Elijah, Eli, Eli. Apparently, there was this idea in Jewish folk piety that Elijah was going to come and he was going to uh, introduce the Messiah to the Jewish people and validate the Messiah. Validate the Messiah. So the commentators are all agreed that these words by the bystanders are mocking words against Jesus. William Hendrickson says, what is described then here in verse 35 is the mockery of those heartless persons who tried to make others believe that they had heard Jesus cry to Elijah for help. Of course, they knew better. Lenski, the commentator, says, so the mockery was this. Now that this fellow is about at his end, he's frantically calling for Elijah to rescue him and to proclaim him as the Messiah. And Calvin says, that they deliberately intended to mock Christ and to turn his prayer into an occasion of slander amounts to saying that Christ has no access to God because by employing Elijah, he sees relief in another quarter. In other words, the mockery was this. God's not going to hear him, so he's going to cry out for Elijah to help him. And here's this man who's claiming to be the Messiah. He's really not, but he's calling upon Elijah to make this last-ditch effort to rescue him and to vindicate him as Messiah. And so the commentators are agreed that those words were mocking words. In addition to all the other mockery, what R.C. Sproul calls the storm of mockery that Jesus had already received, here is further mockery of Jesus by these words, that he's calling upon Elijah to bail him out. So the first group of witnesses to the crucifixion 
we might say, were the mockers. They disbelieved Jesus. They disclaimed him. They disregarded him as one they needed to take seriously. There were the mockers. But then there were what I'm calling the marvelers. And for this, yeah, the marvelers. Look at verses 37 to 39. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. Notice it was a loud cry. And breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, here is quite a different response to the crucifixion than the mockery. Now, we don't know how many Roman soldiers were there at the crucifixion. It is speculated that perhaps there were 12 of them, four for each man being crucified, We know that the clothing of Jesus was divided among four soldiers. But one of the men was a centurion. And centurion, we know the word century, a centurion was a man who was in charge of a hundred soldiers. And it is believed that he was probably in charge of this execution team. And his response at the death of Jesus was one of awe and marveling. Truly, this man was the Son of God, or as Luke puts it, certainly this man was innocent. Literally, this man was righteous. Now, what prompted him to say that? What led him to make that statement? Well, in Matthew's version, we read, now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. From Matthew's angle... And this is part of the, this is the truth of God's word. What prompted the centurion to say this was, was the earthquake and the other phenomena that were happening. Well, what was happening? There was the earthquake. There was the sudden pall of darkness. Perhaps the words that Jesus had spoken from the cross. Crucifixions were no doubt very ugly scenes. Not only ugly because of the blood and the gore but because of the cursings and the swearings and the vulgarity of those being crucified, of the Roman soldiers, the animosity, crucifixions were no doubt very ugly scenes. But this man, this centurion, was seeing something different. He was seeing a man mocked and reviled, but not reviling in return. There was a a holy silence. He was even blessing his enemies by praying for them. This man was witnessing something he had probably never seen before. Now, according to Mark, however, Mark focuses on this. Mark focuses on the way he breathed his last. Mark says that what prompted from him, this is the son of God, was the way he breathed his last. Now, we notice from the text that he breathed his last with a loud voice. That was unusual. His strength had been whittled away physically. I mean, he was being crucified. Every particle of strength was being drained from him. How did he muster the, the, the strength to be able to give his last cry loudly? Luke tells us what that loud cry was. It was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now consider this, this Roman soldier at the crucifixion would have heard, he would have overheard the Jews saying that Jesus was being accused of being the son of God. In Matthew 27, the chief priest said, he trusts in God, let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. 
For he said, I am the son of God. They mocked Jesus as he was on the cross that he had claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate had an interchange with the chief priests, we read in John 19, 7, that the Jewish leader said to Pilate, we have a law and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. So this Roman soldier is hearing that this guy is claiming to be the son of God. And then he hears him utter his last cry loudly, Father, and he's putting it together. He's accused of being the son of God. I heard him cry with this volume of voice, Father, and he's putting it together and he's thinking, maybe this guy is not the imposter and the fraud he's accused of being. He's accused of being the son of God. Now he's calling God Father. Maybe he is who he claimed to be. Now, we shouldn't understand that this pagan Roman understood all the theological implications of Jesus being the Son of God. You know, in theology, he, the Jews understood that to be, claim to be the Son of God was to claim equality with God. We can't expect that the Roman soldier understood all of that but he was definitely giving a great deal of honor to Jesus. Son of God was a a, a term or a phrase used by the Romans of their rulers. And this centurion was ascribing it to Jesus. He is the son of God. So here's a different response from the mockers. This man was likely meeting up with Jesus for the first time, and it impacted him profoundly. He is impressed with Jesus. He's awestruck. With Jesus. He marvels at the person of Jesus. And I think we can say that maybe it was the planting of the seed of faith that would grow into saving faith. Maybe this was the glimmer of light in, a, in the soul of a man that would later be fully illumined. Legend tells us that this man did become a Christian, but we don't know for sure. Surely that understanding would have had to be improved upon and not allowed to evaporate. So we have the mockers and the marvelers. But third, we have the mourners. And here I'm going to turn you to the Gospel of Luke. I've really tried to stick to Mark's Gospel because Mark has a particular angle on things. But to round out the witnesses at the cross, I do want to turn you for a few minutes to Luke's Gospel, Luke 23. And we'll look at two verses there because Luke adds something that Mark does not. In Luke 23, 47 and 48, we read, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. But verse 48, And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. Now vast numbers of people apparently attended the crucifixion. It says here there were multitudes, and they came for a spectacle. That's the word in the Greek from which we get our word theater. They they were expecting to see a show, a theatrical performance. And so, but it says here, so they might have come. They they likely came with light hearts, with flippant attitudes. Oh, we're going to see a show. And we're living in a day where, you know, the Roman Colosseum, where it was sport for them to go and watch gladiators kill people and watch lions devour people. I mean, that was their soccer and baseball and football. 
It was gruesome. It was bloody. And so these people are coming to a crucifixion. You know, like it's going to be a show. It's going to be a theatrical performance. And maybe they were joking on the way. But that's not how they left. The text says when they observed what had happened, they began beating their breasts. Well, what had happened? Well, we've looked at it. They've seen bitter, hate-filled taunting and mockery of this man from nearly every quarter. And yet they saw a man who was bearing the brunt of it, not reviling in return, not threatening, but blessing, praying for his tormentors. They saw the ominous darkness come over the land. They, heard an, they saw and experienced an earthquake. And then they heard this man utter a loud cry that pierced the air as he ended his life. All this had taken the flippancy out of them. They were sobered. It seems like the dreadful thought began to descend upon them that maybe we have made a terrible mistake in killing this man. And so they might have come with a light step. They didn't return that way. They returned with heavy hearts of remorse, regret, confusion, fear, and an oppressed conscience. The emotions that they would have felt are indicated when it says they were beating their breasts. That is the same word or phrase that we find in Luke 18, where you have the, the Pharisee and the publican, and the Pharisee is boasting about his self-righteousness. And then we see the, the tax collector, and he's beating his breasts. He's too ashamed of his sin to look up to heaven. And he's beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That beating of the breast indicated guilt and shame. And that's what these people were experiencing who were leaving the site of the crucifixion. They were mourning over what had happened. Could this have been the first step in their conversion? It may well be. Remember in Peter's Pentecost sermon, he's talking to thousands of Jews and he said, you put him to death by the hands of wicked men. And perhaps the remorse that began on that day was a prelude to them coming to a thorough repentance and saving faith in the man who died on that middle cross. So for them, being a witness to the crucifixion may have sown the seeds which germinated into full-blown belief in Jesus. But then on the other hand, knowing human nature, that grief and sense of guilt may have been short-lived. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it comes, but then in the busyness of life, it evaporates. We just don't know. So there were the mockers. There were the marvelers. There were the mourners. There's one other class of witnesses to the crucifixion. I'm calling the ministers. Coming back to Mark 15, verses 40 and 41. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Here's a final group that witnessed the crucifixion. 
and they were women. There was Mary Magdalene from the village of Magdala. That's why she's called Magdalene on the southwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Luke 8, 2 tells us she was one from whom seven demons had gone out, cast out by Jesus. She had been delivered from the realm of the demonic by the power and compassion of Jesus. Mary Magdalene was there. Another Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joses, according to John 19.25, she was also the wife of Clopas. And then there's another woman mentioned, Salome. Uh, She was the mother of James and John, the two apostles. And apparently she was a sister to Jesus' mother, Mary. These women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also at the crucifixion, although not mentioned here by Mark. These women are described as those who used to follow him and minister to him. The word minister, the word diakoneo, from which we get deacon, it's the common Greek word that means servant. These women used to follow Jesus and minister to him. How? Perhaps financially, perhaps with food and other needed commodities as as women in their tenderness and in their compassion, are often wont to do. These women had faithfully followed Jesus and his disciples and ministered to them for years during the Galilean ministry. Here's something that we need to take note of. The entourage that followed Jesus in his Galilean ministry included women. You're aware that sometimes Christianity is is accused of being misogynistic, being demeaning toward women, regarding women as second-class citizens. Have you ever come upon that, come across that in witnessing to people? Brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ highly honored womankind. A rabbi of that day would not have allowed women to be in their entourage, Jesus had many women who followed him. They were not second-class citizens. In fact, besides John, all of the male disciples fled and were not present at the crucifixion. But these women were there out of love and devotion to Jesus. Jesus honored womankind by having women be some of the first ones to see him resurrected from the dead. What an honor. It was a woman who first reported that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, to be sure, the Bible does teach, and we believe that there are roles given to men and women, and the husband is the head of his wife. He is to be the leader in the home. Only men are to be pastors and leaders in the church, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 3. We're not ashamed of that. But that does not at all demean women. There's also Galatians 3.28 that says, In Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. In other words, we all have an equal standing before Jesus Christ, equally redeemed, equally blessed with every spiritual blessing. And even though there are role distinctions, women are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Jesus honored women, and here is an evidence of it. These women loved Jesus. They were devoted to him, and they were at the crucifixion. Now, it says they were looking on from a distance. Why was that? We don't know. Perhaps the soldiers were forbidding them to get closer. Perhaps the Jewish leaders were were so crowding around the cross that you couldn't get close. 
Although we know at one point Mary and John were close enough for Jesus to address them from the cross, behold your son, behold your mother. But for our purposes, we note that these women witnesses of the crucifixion were there with utterly broken hearts because of their deep love and devotion to their Lord. So these women represent the class of witnesses who are looking at the crucifixion with believing eyes. Now, did they understand all the implications of the crucifixion? No one did until after the resurrection and after the Spirit came and illuminated their minds as to exactly what was accomplished on that cross. But there's no question that these women were believers in Jesus. They loved him. They had followed him for years. So I'm calling them the ministers who were there, ministering to him even by their brokenhearted presence at the crucifixion. So brothers and sisters, here were the witnesses to the crucifixion, the mockers, the marvelers, the mourners, and the ministers. And that's a fixed group of people because Jesus' crucifixion was a one-time historical event never to be repeated. Hebrews 7.27 says, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.26 says, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And Hebrews 10.10 says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. None of us gets to be a witness of the crucifixion. That was a one-time Unique historical event. Those who saw it, saw it, and they were the only ones. However, what is not once for all is to have Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified before the minds and the hearts of people. That has been our commission from the beginning and will be until the end. As individuals, and as a church, we are, proclaim, we are called to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth and to the end of the age. And like Paul, we are to have as central to our message the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So every time the gospel is preached, every time you witness to someone, you are publicly portraying before their eyes Jesus Christ as crucified. Aren't you? Aren't we? And what we find is the response of people to the crucified Jesus throughout history parallels the responses that those had who actually witnessed his physical crucifixion. And so we're going to end by applying this to those who have not seen his crucifixion in the flesh, but have him presented before them in their mind's eye by the preaching and witnessing of the gospel. There are those who mock. Throughout history, there are always have been and will be those who mock at the gospel and at the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, friends, hasn't it been your experience, at least in our society, that there's a general respect for Jesus, even among those who don't believe in him for salvation? That has generally been so in our generally Christianized society, that people have a respect for Jesus, and they're very hesitant to mock him or to make fun of him. But I submit to you that the times, they are a-changing. Many of you are aware what happened Friday night in Los Angeles Stadium. The Los Angeles Dodgers 
in order to celebrate Pride Night, hired the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence with a Community Hero Award. An obscene, vulgar, blasphemous group. They dress up as nuns. They are homosexuals and transgendered people. They dress up as nuns, although they are not nuns. They mock the Catholic Church in particular, but more broadly, they mock Christianity. I'm told they actually have pole dancing around crosses, lewd, vulgar dancing around the cross. Friends, it is a marvel that they were not stricken dead on the spot for that kind of blasphemy. So I say, even though Jesus has generally been a respectable person in our Christianized society, we can expect that to change and expect that there will be more overt mockery and making fun of Jesus. But there are other ways to mock Jesus short of that kind of vulgarity and blasphemy. In a sense, all unbelief mocks Jesus, doesn't it? All unbelief mocks Jesus. If you don't believe, if someone doesn't believe, what they're saying to Jesus is, Jesus, when you said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but through me, I don't believe you. When you said, even the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many, that I have come to pay for the sins of people who will trust in me. If you say, I don't believe you, Jesus, you're, you're mocking him. When Jesus diagnosed the human condition in Mark 7, 21 and 23, and says, out of the heart of man proceeds evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and a whole catalog of sins, and someone says, I don't believe that diagnosis. You're trying to call me a sinner, Jesus? I don't believe you when you give that diagnosis of the human heart. So in effect, all unbelief mocks Jesus and says, Jesus, when you made all those claims you made, I don't think you were telling the truth. I think you're a liar. All unbelief mocks Jesus and his cross. Even nominal faith mocks Jesus. You know what nominal faith in name only Christians. There are a lot of people who aren't genuinely converted or born again, but they go to church. They have a churchianity, and they're proud of that. I go to church. I'm involved in my church. I sing in the choir. I'm a deacon. It's all about my church, my church, my church, my church. But they never take the time to probe the words of Jesus as to what constitutes a true disciple of Jesus, a truly saved person. They're content with this superficial churchianity that too is mocking Jesus. And so there were not only mockers at the foot of the cross. There have always been mockers of Jesus and the crucifixion. There are mockers today. I hope none of you is among them. And I hope if you do, if you are one, that you will believe in him and repent of your mockery. But there are also those who marvel at Jesus. Like the centurion, they recognize there, there's something special about Jesus. This man is no ordinary man. He's the son of God. There's something about Jesus that puts him head and shoulders above the rank and file of humanity. There are people who, who marvel at Jesus, who are impressed with Jesus. 
Some are gripped by his power. They read about his power over demons and over disease and over death and over nature. And that impresses them. Others may be impressed with the kindness and compassion of Jesus. Though he had this great power, he never used it in destructive or hurtful ways, but only to do good. What a compassionate and kind man this Jesus was. Others are captivated by his holiness, his goodness. He never said an unkind word. He never acted peevishly or selfishly. Even under the greatest pressure and stress, he never lost his composure. He never lashed out in retaliation. His profound humility, people are captivated by the the goodness of Jesus. What do we say to those who marvel at Jesus? I think we should say this. You're moving in the right direction. Keep going. Keep going until your respect for Jesus as an amazing man becomes worship of Jesus as the God-man. It's good that you respect Jesus. He is respectable, but he's more than the fairest flower of humanity. He's more than the best specimen of human nature. He's the God-man. You're going in the right direction, but you got to go further, not to admire him as a good man, but to worship him as the God-man. And then there are those who mourn. Those who marvel are being captivated with the goodness of Jesus. Those who mourn are beginning to see the badness of their own human hearts and lives. In the narrative of Luke, remember, the witnesses to the crucifixion went to their homes, beating their breasts, lamenting and mourning over the fact that they, they made a huge mistake and they were overwhelmed with a sense of guilt. Friends, grief and sorrow over sin is absolutely necessary for salvation. Remember how Jesus said, I have not come to call those who are healthy, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you think you're good, if you think you're righteous, you will never see your need for a savior. You have no badness from which to turn, from which to repent. Only those who see themselves as bad see the need to repent and to look outside themselves for a savior. No one ever comes savingly to Jesus who has not come to see their desperate need for salvation outside themselves. They must turn from their self-righteousness, their sense of self-goodness and self-achievement and self-salvation. That all must be rejected as futile. And they must come to cry with that man in the temple, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I need mercy because I deserve hell. So what do we say to the one, the mourner, who has begun to see his or her badness. Well, again, we say, keep going in that direction. Keep putting yourself under the microscope of God's word so that you might come to see yourself as God sees you. Not as a relatively good person compared to others, which is what we like to do, right? And a person may be relatively good compared to others. I'm not making the newspapers. I'm not in, you know, I'm not a criminal. 
And a lot of people like to compare themselves to others. If God grades on a curve, I'm pretty high top the bell curve, right? And we have to say to people, stop comparing yourself to other people and increasingly come to see yourself as God sees you, as God sees all of us as utterly filthy, unclean, polluted before his eyes. And we would tell such who are beginning to see their own badness, keep reading the Bible. The Bible will expose you. It will show you who you are from God's standpoint. Keep coming under the preaching of God's word and keep hanging out with Christians because Christians, although they're not perfect, they're different. They're changed. They're made more holy. I know for me, the first thing that attracted me to the gospel and to Christ was Christians who were living these wholesome, pure lives relative to what I knew. Keep hanging around around with Christians. And then we would say to those mourners, let God increasingly show you how selfish you are, how proud you are, how ungrateful you are, how jealous you are, how angry you are, how lustful you are. And don't make excuses. Don't blame shift. Don't rationalize your bad behavior. Call yourself what God calls you, a lost, rebellious, condemned sinner. And you know it's okay to do that because there's a Savior who's willing to catch you when you throw yourself into his arms and say, I need mercy. There's a Savior who's willing to be merciful and gracious to you so you can admit that you're a filthy, dirty, hell-deserving rebel sinner because there's one who came to die and cleanse you and to forgive you. And that's what we tell those who are mourning over their sin. And then finally, there are those who minister to Jesus. That would be all of us here who are believers. Like those women, we serve Jesus. But why? And how did we come to serve Jesus, to minister to Jesus? Yes, there are pastoral ministers. There are ministers of the word. But all Christians are ministers. We all serve Jesus. Why? because you first allowed him to serve you. We become ministers by being ministered to. And the thing we need most, we can't do for ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't forgive ourselves. We can't cleanse ourselves. And so we come to Jesus and let him serve us in the thing we most need, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. And after he serves us and saves us, he not only becomes our savior, but our Lord. And we are changed on the inside so that we now want to serve him all our days and we give up our own wills to do, gladly do his will and to live for his glory. As one of my favorite stanzas and one of my favorite hymns says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening, a life-giving ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the the way it always is with God's people. When Jesus serves you and saves you, then it leads to a life of intentional, sacrificial, obedient service that is automatic, reflexive, and natural to the new nature. That's what a Christian is. Are you one? If not, you can call upon him and become one right now. Father, thank you 
that by your grace, many of us here are not mockers anymore, not merely marvelers at a good man, not merely mourners, but we are by your grace ministers. Thank you for serving us and saving us and turning us into servants of yourself. If anyone here does not know you, please work in their hearts and draw them to yourself. We worship you and praise you for your great salvation. In Jesus' name.